Thank you all so much for having us. I'm excited for the discussion today. Um, I thought we could get started. Um, both um, Professor Lovelace and Professor Ortiz, as you've learned, have been working on pieces related to the 50th anniversary of the 1971 Virginia Constitution. I thought it would be helpful for you all to walk us through some of the things you've been focused on in your scholarship in this area, and of course, how it relates to the civil rights movement and the role of race um, in the Constitution, which is what we're here to discuss today. And then after you give us overviews of your work, um, then I'll have a couple questions for the two of you, and then we want to have lots of time for you all in the audience to ask whatever questions you may have as well. So Professor Ortiz, do you want to get us started? Um, and then we'll turn it over to you, Professor Lovelace. Sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to the Journal of Law and Politics. It was a wonderful invitation. And also for getting me engaged in a project that turned out to be more interesting than I had actually anticipated. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with such interesting uh, other guests. And I want to thank you all for coming out so late on such a fine autumn afternoon. I know by looking at the size of the little food packages there, it can't be because of the free dinner. Uh, so let's talk first about the problems of evaluating the voting rights in the 1971 Virginia Constitution. Because you pick up the 1971 Constitution, you look at it, and it's sort of hard to sort of figure out what's going on. There aren't really mentions of voting rights much one way or another. There's a felon uh, exclusion, which was pretty standard at the time was thought to be non relatively non-controversial. It's a very odd provision I want to talk about, which says that the General Assembly, if it wants, can have require people in their own handwriting to answer qualifications questions. And that sort of strikes you as odd. But then there's nothing really one way or the other. It doesn't seem particularly progressive on its face. It doesn't you know, grant a lot of voting rights protections. On the other hand, it doesn't really seem to like take them away. So just looking at the document itself, you really can't tell very much. It's an enigma. So what you have to do is put it in historical and various different historical perspectives. And first of all, I think most importantly, you have to compare it to the prior constitution, which is 1902. And then you also, I think, have to be very aware of the times. Now, compared to the 1902 constitution, when you pick the one up, compare it to the other, Wow, 1971 looks great. So you say, well, you know, mark one up for progress in Virginia, something like that. And then you want to ask yourself why. You want to look at the detailed history, and it becomes much more complicated and interesting. And you might be tempted to tell yourself a kind of triumphalist narrative. I mean, now, wow, things were really bad in Virginia for a long time. And then we had this epiphany in the 1960s. Uh, and we realized what was wrong, you know, we, we, what was wrong with the way we've been doing things, and we changed the Constitution to sort of correct that. And it's a very kind of progressive uh, narrative. You wonder, though, about the reality. Here it was 1971 when the Constitution was adopted. Actually, the General Assembly uh, and the governor sort of set the balls in motion, set things going in like 1960, late 1967, early 1968. And the commission that actually came up with the proposals, which were not like completely, but were largely unchanged, and they were sort of adopted by the General Assembly and sent to uh, the Virginia voters, uh, the, they were sort of working as early as 1968. And I think that time is significant. Uh, you are way too young to realize, there's some thinking, 1968. Well, 1968 is as close to the Great Depression as it is to now. 
right? And when I was like, you know, I was alive in 1968, and I thought the Great Depression was when dinosaurs roamed the earth and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, it's kind of strange time, uh, but it was really important uh, because it was, times were very fraught. In April, Martin Luther King was assassinated. There were uh, riots in Washington, D.C., riots in Richmond, 41 people in Richmond, I think at least 41 people in Richmond uh, died. In July, Robert and Kennedy, Robert and Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, in August, there was a Democratic National Convention, which just turned out to be kind of bloodbath on TV. Uh, for those of you who know anything about it, uh, police brutality, lots of stuff. So it was a time of great racial and social unrest. And the presidential campaign that year focused in large part on law and order and like how hard you should be on people to preserve order. Uh, so I think that's sort of important, also an important part of your background as well. So let's talk about the 1902 Constitution. So I'll give you a picture of what things were like before. And I want to read you a statement by the person who is thought to be most responsible for all the election law provisions in the 1902 Constitution, which is a guy named Carter Glass. He was a publisher of the, Lynchburg, the newspaper in Lynchburg, a very big deal uh, in the state. Later on, went to become a congressman, and then uh, he's the one who was responsible for the Glass-Steagall Act. Here he is talking to the convention. I'll just read you verbatim. Mr. President, in the midst of differing contentions and suggested perplexities, there stands out the uncontroverted fact that the article of suffrage, which the convention will today adopt, does not necessarily deprive a single white man of the ballot, but will inevitably cut from the existing electorate four-fifths of the Negro voters. And then the, uh, the record says applause. So people were happy with that. That was the purpose of this convention. That will be its achievement. Then a delegate asks him, will it not be by fraud and discrimination? And Glass responds, by fraud, no. By discrimination, yes. But it will be discrimination within the letter of the law and not in violation of the law. Discrimination, why that is precisely what we propose. That exactly is what this Constitution was elected for, to discriminate to the very extremity of permissible action under the limitations of the federal Constitution, with a view to the elimination of every, every Negro voter who can be gotten rid of, legally, without materially imperiling the numerical strength of the white electorate. As has been said, we have accomplished our purpose strictly within the limitations of the federal Constitution by legislating against the characteristics of the black race and not against the race, color, or previous condition of the people themselves. It is a fine discrimination indeed that we have practiced in the fabrication of this plan. And now, Mr. President, we ask the convention to confirm our work and emancipate Virginia. Stirring call. Now, what this convention did is it came with two different regimes uh, for voter qualification. Basically, uh, you had to be a male, you had to be over 21. You couldn't have convicted. You couldn't have uh, engaged in certain kind of felonies. You had to be mentally competent, and you had ne and you uh, you couldn't ever have been in a duel. Go figure, right? Now, between the adoption of the Constitution in 1902 and January 1st, 1904, there was one regime for getting on the electoral rolls. If you were a veteran or the son of a veteran in any war of the United States. Guess which war that primarily was? The Civil War? Didn't matter which side you were on, you were automatically allowed to vote. 
If you pay, had, were a property holder and had a paid a certain minimum tax, you were allowed to vote. And if you could go into the uh, electoral, uh, the registrar's office and read any provision of the Constitution that the registrar chose for you and then explain it to the registrar in a way that satisfied the registrar, you could be enrolled there. So either one, one of those three ways, that would do it. Uh, now, of course, the, the, under, the so-called understanding clause, which is this bit that allowed the register to test your understanding, there was no guarantee. In fact, it's pretty clear from the debates that it was expected to be administered discriminatorily. And that actually was what happened. People, uh, white people would be asked things like, how many, what are the three parts of government? Right? Pretty easy question, even though, if, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the Alabama uh, the last Alabama senatorial race, it appears that one of our present senators wasn't able to answer that one correctly, right? Whereas African-American applicants would be asked to explain things like ex post facto clauses or very complicated technical provisions of the Virginia Constitution, okay? Then on January 1st, 1904, a different regime uh, came uh, in. You had, to, you, could, you, had to, and these, you had to do all three of these things. You had to pay a poll tax to vote. You had to be able to register in your own handwriting without any help from anyone, fill out all the things that were relevant for registration. And you had to do it without being able to necessarily know what you were being asked for. So for example, when African-American registrants would come in, they'd be given a blank sheet of paper and say, fill it out, right? They wouldn't be cued at all as to the information that was required. Uh, and then you also had to answer, they had, registrants had to answer any and all questions concerning their qualifications as an elector. So notice the sort of change in approach. 1902 to 1904, there were three separate things. If you matched, if you satisfied any one of them, you could vote. After January 1st, 1904, you had to satisfy all three of those things. What the reason for it, you might ask, well, why the change? is that they wanted to be able to get illiterate white people on the rolls, and the history of, is clear uh, you know, from the debates. They wanted to get illiterate white people, as many illiterate white people on the rolls as possible between 1902 and 1904, and then make it as hard as possible for lots of people to get in with disproportionately African uh, Americans. So this had a huge effect. And the city of Richmond, for example, just in 1902, from when the Constitution was adopted to October, just a few months, right, when the first regime was in place, the number of registered African American African Americans in the city dropped from 6,427 to 760, right? That's what about a, that's like 10% of what it was or something like that of what it was uh, before. So it really uh, worked. And there was also, there were non-constitutional or sub-constitutional barriers that worked uh, this way too. So for example, uh, African-American athletes were asked to wait for a long time before they could register. Uh, uh, whites were not. Uh, there were white primaries in Virginia, I think until like the early, late 20s, early 1930s, which had the same kind of effect. But that was not actually in the Constitution. So the Constitution wasn't everything, it was just a big part of the picture. So after 1904, there were four hurdles. Someone had to answer all questions about their qualifications, they had to pay a poll tax, they had to pass literacy test, and they, had, they couldn't be a fellow. Okay. Uh, 
So let's sort of talk about how all these things operated and what their durability. The, uh, the questions about qualifications. Okay? Well, some registrars understood this as giving them the latitude to ask people just questions about civics. And some African-Americans showed up to register and were asked how many people had signed the Declaration of Independence. How many of you all know that? I don't. I don't think I ever did uh, kind of thing. Were denied uh, registration because they couldn't answer that question. Well, eventually in the 19, when did this happen? 1931, the NAACP represented someone that this happened to or something like this happens to, happened to and they sued. And in the Virginia Supreme Court uh, limited it a bit and said, well, you actually have to be able to answer questions about qualifications, not just about everything in the world that might conceivably be relevant to a civic education, like how many people sign the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but it turned out in a related case that was going through at the same time that the registrar who denied the African-Americans' ability to register because they didn't know how many people signed the Declaration of Independence, he himself didn't, wasn't able to answer the question on the stand. Uh, so that's you know, pretty crazy. Poll tax. The Supreme Court in, of the United States in 1937 upheld it, but not under a racial challenge. Then the 24th Amendment banned it in federal elections, not state and local elections. That was in 1964, right? Uh, Virginia really oppo opposed that. In fact, didn't ratify the 24th Amendment until 1977, right? Didn't make any difference really uh, then. But the Supreme Court, in a case called Harper versus Board of Elections in 1966, struck down poll taxes in state and local elections, too, as violating the Equal Protection Clause. Literacy tests, well, they had been upheld by the Supreme Court. Uh, then the Supreme Court in 1965, I think it was, said that, well, if they invest a lot of discretion with the, the unreviewable discretion, uh, with the registrar, like the old-fashioned understanding clause. Those are unconstitutional, but by that time, Virginia just required you to, in your own handwriting, answer all the required questions. So Virginia's required literacy test wasn't affected by that. But then in 1965, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act, which suspended literacy test in jurisdictions where there were low registration rates, and that included Virginia, which had one of the worst registration, voter registration rates in the country. But it's only for five years, from 1965 to uh, 1970. Uh, felon disenfranchisement around the time, late 1960s, that was thought just fine. Uh, pretty much all the cases had said it was okay, and it wasn't really a big deal on people's radar screens the way it is now. So here we have the 1971 Constitution. Notice it didn't say very much about voting rights. The only thing it says there's a felon, you can exclude felons if you want. And also, the General Assembly could have handwriting tests, record, you know, ask people uh, to uh, answer questions in their own handwriting. Well, I think that's significant because, look, and in judging you know, how progressive the Constitution is, you could say, well, you know, everything went away. That's progress. Yeah, but it didn't go away because people in Virginia wanted to go away. Its toolbox was taken away. Right? Congress and the Supreme Court had said that the poll tax, literacy test, things like this, you could no longer do. And Virginia actually held on to the things that were still permissible, like the felon exclusion. And that explains this kind of snapback provision in the Constitution, allowing the General Assembly to have a literacy test of some kind if it, you know, later if it wanted. It just couldn't do it then because the literacy test had been suspended. 
Well, it turned out that you know, so I think that makes a lot, you know, helps you know, uh, helps evaluate the how progressive it really is. Well, yeah, it took a lot of bad stuff away, but it had to. That's uh, there's no longer it couldn't actually use any of those devices uh, anymore. So I think it's a kind of cup half at best, cup half full. Uh, it's probably more, a little bit more than half empty, if you will. Uh, properly understood, probably not that progressive uh, at all. Uh, subsequent history, just filling in a little bit details where we stand now. Maybe now we're in a more hopeful situation. The Voting Rights Act was extended time and time again until finally in 1975, the suspension of literacy tests was made permanent and nationwide. Felon disenfranchisement, the Supreme Court upheld those provisions in 1974 generally, but in 1985 in a case called Hunter versus Underwood said that if they were enacted with discriminatory intent, they would be constitutionally unsound. There were Virginia challenges uh, to the Virginia felon disenfranchisement. They basically went nowhere until one good one uh, was set up during the McDonald administration. And then surprisingly, McDonald, Governor McDonald, uh, restored that person's civil rights, so it mooted the case. More recently, Democratic Governor uh, McAuliffe tried to uh, restore civil rights to people en masse, basically wholesale, uh, and the General Assembly sued him. Uh, and the Virginia Supreme Court said, no, 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 you can't actually do this in mass. You have to do it case by case by case by case. So the governor then said, okay, I'll do it by auto pen. So he just had this auto pen working day by day, hour by hour, literally hour by hour, signing tens of thousands of these things. And he was sued by the General Assembly again uh, because this wasn't really for contempt of court. This wasn't really what the Supreme Court meant and the Supreme Court uh, unanimously told the General Assembly to go away. Uh, didn't want to be involved in it anymore. Right now, the situation maybe is a little bit better. Uh, constitutional amendment was uh, went through the first stage of passage in the General Assembly to restore felons' rights. Uh, whether it actually becomes part of the Constitution will depend, I think, largely on the elections this November and then how voters feel uh, next fall. Uh, Virginia adopted a Baby Voting Rights Act, which is actually better than the Federal Voting Rights Act. Doesn't apply to federal elections, of course. Uh, and we now have an independent redistricting commission, uh, which we're trying to get our way through. So maybe there is some hope there, and things are you know, going to be uh, much better. Uh, but it's probably too early to say we've reached, Virginia's reached its second reconstruction. Uh, but at least this one, it looks like we've done more, you know, have more effect. Uh, and it's something that we'll have really done ourselves. So I think we actually should feel good about the recent moves in this area. So thank you. Thank you, Professor Ortiz. So I think you've set out a compelling thesis that the 71 Constitution, not nearly as progressive as maybe um, it's been made out to be, um, Professor Lovelace, what can you add to that from your own research? I think um, you tell us about the Capital City Amendment um, and how that plays into, I think, a pretty similar uh, similar theme for today. Absolutely. Um, and my comments really do flow um, nicely with uh, Professor Ortiz's. Um, but first, I'd like to um, thank uh, Madeline um, for the warm introduction, um, the member, members of the journal, um, Brian Blaylock, who's provided me with some research assistance. Um, and I'd also like to thank Professor Schrager, um, here in the back, 
um, Professor Ortiz, Judge Lorsch, and Professor Dick Howard um, for his work on the state constitution. Um, for me, it's great to be back. I am an alum uh, several times over of the University of Virginia. Um, this is a place that I call home. I could have never imagined myself when I was a 1L, 2L, 3L being on the other side of this desk. Um, and it's a, a real privilege to talk about the role of the civil rights movement in shaping the Virginia State Constitution in 1971. I'm a native Virginian. And so this brings me back in many ways to my roots. And so what I'll do today is three things. First, I'll talk a bit more about the background of the 1902 uh, state constitution and then the provisions that flow from that and the 1971 constitution. Second, I'll explore this forgotten moment in the state's constitutional history. Commemorations sometimes um, invite a nostalgia, right? but remembering can also be a way of forgetting. And when you think about the 1971 Constitution compared to the 1902 Constitution, right, we might get nostalgic, we might celebrate right, lots of progressive change, and we'll talk about this, but we must not also forget the Capital City Amendment and the violence that that amendment, which was never actually passed, the violence that that did. And then finally, I'll leave you with a couple of takeaway points. Um, so as Professor Ortiz has told us, the Constitutional Convention of 1901 and 02 uh, made Virginia's Constitution a Jim Crow Constitution. In those early years of the 20th century, we see uh, mandates for racial segregation in Virginia public schools, felon disenfranchisement, petty larceny added to the list of voter disqualifications to limit black voting. This decision here relies on stereotypes and perpetuates stereotypes around black criminality and it ties this to voting. The imposition of a poll tax, the emergence of a literacy test, and that there were clear racial and class disparate impacts, but the racist overtones of those constitutional debates and the provisions that flowed in the first decade of the 20th century were clear. I also want to quote from Delegate Carter Glass of Lynchburg. This is his language. This plan will eliminate the darkie as a political factor in this state in less than five years, so that in no single county will there be the least concern felt for the complete supremacy of the white race in the affairs of government. This is in the heart of those debates. And in many ways, right, Carter Glass proved to be right. It decimated black voting power in the state of Virginia. By the late 1960s, a more progressive spirit had no doubt emerged in the state. But it didn't emerge from a vacuum. That these constitutional drafters didn't one day simply have an epiphany about changing law and society. It was reflected by people like Ivory Morgan, who in the 1940s, more than a decade before, Rosa Parks sat down on the bus. Ivory Morgan in Virginia refused to get up on an interstate bus. And her work with the NAACP 
expanded our ideas of the Commerce Clause. Irene Morgan, Barbara Johns, in the early 1950s, she was a high school student at Prince, in Prince Edward County, and she led a strike on her segregated high school. And she enlisted Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson, like these famed NAACP lawyers, to fight against segregation in public education. The Davis case became one of the Brown cases. And then Annie Harper, her challenge on the state poll tax helped to open up the political process for many in America and indeed here in Virginia. As Professor Ortiz has told us, this Constitution revision emerged less than a year after the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and UVA alumnus Robert F. Kennedy. And during this process, unlike the 1901-1902 Constitutional Convention, there was at least an attempt, right, and a deliberate attempt, at inclusion. We can tell this in a couple of ways. We can look at the body of the draft produced that was sent to voters. We can also look at the bodies of the drafters. Most notably, Oliver Hill, this NAACP lawyer in Brown, served as a member of the Commission on Constitutional Revision. And the 1971 Constitution repudiated some of these Jim Crow provisions in the state's 1902 Constitution. One of the clearest expressions of the ties between the Civil Rights Movement and the 1971 Constitution appears in Article 2 of uh, the 1971 Constitution. It declares that every electoral district shall be drawn in accordance with the requirements of federal and state laws that address racial and ethnic fairness with respect to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. There are other notable provisions that emerge in the 1971 Constitution, tying the Civil Rights Movement to the text. The 1971 uh, Constitution provided for e an Equal Protection Clause. It removed all references to the poll tax, and it required a decennial reapportionment of congressional and general assembly seats in accordance with the one-person, one-vote principle. But to be sure, one might easily argue that the state constitution in 1971 didn't need to do any of these things. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was six years old when the 1971 state constitution emerged. Harper had struck down the state poll tax and the Warren Court had opened the political process for many disadvantaged uh, Virginians through the reapportionment cases. But in some ways, we might think about this as no simple feat. When I think about Virginia history, and I turn to a place like Richmond, and you go to the archives and you read the Richmond News Leader or the Times-Dispatch, right, that there were powerful forces right, arrayed against civil rights activists and lawyers in the state that had opposed things like voter rights legislation. And so the connections right, here can be clear. But perhaps what's equally striking in the state's constitutional history, it's not simply these provisions that are enshrined in the 1971 Constitution emerging from the Civil Rights Movement, but also what provisions were not enshrined in the state constitution. 
the General Assembly considered two constitutional amendments with very racist overtones. I'll talk about one that was particularly explosive, the Capital City Amendment. In the 1960s, the city of Richmond attempted to annex uh, portions of Chesterfield County and Henrico County to enlarge the city's tax base. As developments in Richmond and elsewhere showed, debates over annexation often turned into so much more than debates around their tax base. They became thinly veiled ways to talk about race in America. During the 1960s, black political power in Richmond was growing tremendously. Due to civic organizations like the Crusade for Voters and African American Organization, there was an emergence of political candidates like Henry March, who was a law partner of Oliver Hill and Sam Tucker. This represented black self-determination in local politics. And demographers showed that Richmond would soon become a majority black city. Whites in Richmond, on the other hand, were moving from the city at unprecedented rates. They cited lots of things, right? Lower taxes, better schools, right? and the language of better schools became a way to talk about de facto school segregation, right? It's a politer, it's a more polite way to think about massive resistance. They also talked about social problems, things like welfare, again, right? These thinly veiled references to race as they exited to the suburbs. The region weathered pitched and protracted annexation battles. And these battles produced strange political bedfellows. You had black Richmonders on one hand who increasingly opposed annexation. They were concerned about black political power. On the other hand, you had many whites in Henrico and Chesterfield counties that did not want to be annexed. In fact, many of them had become suburbanites so that they didn't have to live in the same political community right, in these municipal bounds with black Richmonders. But pro-annexation officials in Richmond and interscoops lobbied the General Assembly to expand the city's boundaries. They used this state constitutional revision as an opportunity to move their debates that were happening largely outside of the General Assembly. They took this constitutional moment and they seized that moment. And they proposed a capital city amendment. Under the capital city amendment, the General Assembly every decade could redraw the boundaries of Richmond. Richmond doesn't sit in any county, right? And so think about the power here, right? That there would be a constitutional amendment that would allow the General Assembly every decade to redraw these boundaries that could take land that could take residence, that could take a tax base right, from one of the surrounding counties. And so Chesterfield County caved. They conceded here as these debates were raging. The General Assembly was clear that they were actually going to approve right, this constitutional amendment. But in the correspondence, in the archival record, you see correspondence between Chesterfield county officials and Richmond officials right, around annexation. And we might right, talk about Carter Glass now more than a century ago using racial epithets. But many of the conversations between Richmond city officials who were pro-annexation 
And then Chesterfield County officials were filled with racial epithets. And this simply didn't happen in private. It happened also in public. Outright racist appeals. An article published in the Richmond News Leader uh, declared that James Wheat, a local businessman and politician, said that if the city could not annex or merge, Richmond, quote, will become a permanent black ghetto, a happy hunting ground for ambitious political opportunists. He's talking about people like Henry Marsh. And so these pre-annexation forces found success. They were, they had forced Chesterfield County to concede 47,000 largely white residents of Chesterfield County were annexed. More than 20 miles of Chesterfield County was annexed. And so in the next term of the General Assembly, the Capital City Amendment was actually dropped. This is really interesting. Sometimes winning for the ant for black Richmonders, right? winning ostensibly this amendment has been this amendment has been dropped, right? is losing. Their votes were diluted. We think about on one hand you have this ostensibly progressive constitution in 1971, one that respects the Voting Rights Act of 1965. On the other hand, you have a process that diluted the votes of blacks in Richmond. And so the turn of events was no doubt ironic. I wanna leave you with a couple of takeaway points. The first is a cautionary tale, a cautionary tale. This constitutional process in 1971 and in the late 1960s seemed progressive. And in fact, when compared to 1901 and 1902, no doubt progressive. There was an attempt at inclusion. At the same time of this process of inclusion, there was great exclusion. That there could be more than one reality. That sometimes winning is not winning. And everything that we call inclusion is not inclusion. That blacks were losing their power to elect um, officials of their own choice. Second takeaway point. Hope. In the late 1960s, there was a growing spirit of progressive reform that people from often the bottom, Annie Harper, Barbara Johns, and others, had created the context for social and legal change. And we began to see many of these changes. Today, there's another racial reckoning that's happening a half century after those debates. There's a new Voting Rights Act in Virginia. We're now talking about prison gerrymandering, nonpartisan uh, gerrymandering. But we should never sit on our laurels. The work of civil rights is not yet finished. Democracy is still a work in progress. We can't be truthful. If we can't be truthful about the democracy we have and the work to be done, we won't have the democracy we so sorely need. Thank you. All right, thank you, Professor Lovelace. So I think there's a lot of commonalities in what you all have shared um, with respect to your scholarship today. Um, 
and, and one thing it calls to my mind is I uh, understand and I, it makes a lot of sense to me that Virginia, Virginia's hand was more or less forced by the federal changes that happened, both with respect to the Voting Rights Act and also decisions from the Supreme Court with respect to many of the changes, at least to the um, poll tax that you've talked about, um, also to voter qualifications, uh, literate test. Uh, do you think there's still any significance, though, the fact that Virginia did put it in writing and that there was a public campaign to uh, ratify and a pretty high ratification rate, I think, north of 70% of Virginia citizens did vote to put this constitution into place. Uh, is there a significance to that story being told uh, and putting a marker in the sand, if you will, even if Virginia didn't really have much of a choice? And as part of that, I also wonder if you could share any reflections on whether the addition of um, rights with respect to education and the 1971 constitution have any significance to the uh, other aspects of that constitution that you've shared today or had any role in the civil rights movement? Uh, I think, you know, it's very important how we think about these things. So, you know, it's surely, the 1971 constitution surely did represent progress in some ways. Uh, but, you know, as Professor Lovelace has suggested, there's a danger uh, to that, especially if it's somewhat unwarranted, in that, you know, it causes you to accept things that you probably shouldn't expect. It probably stops you from working uh, as hard as you need to be working to actually make things better. So maybe, you know, on the one hand, it was this, the 1971 Constitution was this public affirmation and maybe just sort of civic sigh of relief. Oh my God, we've gotten beyond what we had been. And a little bit of self back, uh, back padding. Uh, but on the other hand, it's really taken us, as Tim said, you know, 50 years uh, to, and a particular alignment of the political stars to get to this moment where we are now, which is, you know, really thrilling in some ways. But still, even if all these things are successful, it's going to be somewhat uh, incomplete. Um, and so it's, you know, maybe it's a kind of, on the one hand, it's, it is good and observed, but on the other hand, it can lull you into a sense of false consciousness that everything is better and we don't need to worry anymore and aren't we great people when we're really not? Yeah. Um, in many ways, the Virginia State Constitution of 1971 is a reflection of changing law and society. Right? So this state constitution was not on the cutting edge, right? driving federal law, right? changing um, society on its you know, because of uh, state provisions, right? That it was a reflection of things that had already happened. And so in some ways, we should say that this constitution, while more progressive than 1901 and 1902, didn't go far enough. And thinking about education, this just brings to mind um, what could have been done. What could have been done? Could the state constitution, for example, have, could it have created a fundamental right to education? We don't see a fundamental right to education under the state constitution until decades later, and this is through courts, not through changing the text of the state constitution. So it might have gone further easily at that time. There's a welfare rights movement that was occurring. Um, 
but you know, no doubt progress, right? So under the state constitution, the state is required to maintain public schools. This was a response to developments in Prince Edward County, um, that Prince Edward County um, in places like Charlottesville had closed their public schools during massive resistance. Now, the Supreme Court was ahead of the state here on that issue, but the fact that the state constitution reflected this, there is a sort of civic spirit there and a recognition that massive resistance is wrong, right? And there's a clear statement of that. But no doubt, the state constitution might have gone, uh, might have gone further. Thank you. Uh, another thing that stood out to me when you both shared your remarks today is the interplay, just more generally, of the federal and state systems. And having just come from the federal government to now state government, I'm experiencing that on an everyday basis. But I'm wondering if we, if you might posit that we're about to see a flip. You know, we mentioned both of you kind of hope in the kind of current moment in Virginia um, and a progressive wave um, and some new efforts that have been passed, some that are about to be passed potentially. Will we see a shift where states, Virginia and other, may be out ahead of the federal government in terms of civil rights legislation and voting inclusion? Yeah, well, I think uh, Virginia now certainly is in uh, several important ways. But I would not generalize from the Virginia experience. In many other states, we seem to be running in the opposite direction uh, more, you know, more quickly. And there's been a general relaxation, uh, at least in the voting rights area, of federal uh, requirements, uh, mostly because of the Supreme Court. There's the Shelby County uh no decision 10 years ago uh earlier this year which basically uh undercut section 5 of the voting rights act which was thought to be legitimately the most important provision uh and then in shelby county the justices who voted to uh sort of basically incapacitated said don't worry there's always section two and then this past year in a case called bronovich uh, the Supreme Court basically neutered Section 2, uh, sort of rolled things back pretty far uh, there. Uh, and, you know, some states will, like Virginia, will basically legislate to try to over, at least make up for that, if not supersede where we were before. Uh, other states, however, are uh, going to sort of go with the flow and, you know, make things easier. And you've seen in areas where the Voting Rights Act doesn't actually touch, like election administration, where it's very hard to sort of make a case that it uh, has much uh, power there. You've seen states like Georgia, Texas, and some others move quite radically to politicize uh, everyday uh, election administration. Uh, so uh, I think, you know, Virginia is in a sense, I think, a special case. Maybe there's Virginia and a few others. Uh, but the state-federal dynamic has actually worked, I think, uh, to allow a lot of states to really go in the opposite direction if they want. Yeah, I um, in the area of voting rights, um, Virginia is ahead of states like Texas, Florida, Georgia, um, on multiple fronts. Obviously, with the Voting Rights Act of Virginia um, and being the first southern state to make this move, right? So Virginia is ahead of the federal government on this front and many states. Um, in the area of nonpartisan uh, districting, right? Um, in a state, I'm in North Carolina, right? There's been a huge fight over partisan gerrymandering. And so Virginia's ahead of 
no doubt states like North Carolina, but even the federal government here. Um, when I think about HR1, um, the, call, the calls for uh, ending partisan gerrymandering right, are not being heard um, by many in Congress. That um, HR4, right, a, a milder voting rights uh, bill, will not probably be passed, even though there are Democratic uh, majority, there's a Democratic majority in the House and it's a 50-50 tie, obviously, in the Senate with the Vice President being able to break that tie. And so in some ways, Virginia is ahead of many other states and the federal government. However, right, still clear work to be done. Felon disenfranchisement is one of those fronts. Right, we're moving on prisons, right? How do we count prisoners? Do we count prisoners in uh, the prisons where they're being housed, or do we look to their last state address? Right? That um, this work is happening, but we must continue. The last thing I'll say here um, about just sort of unfinished business, municipal bounds in and of themselves, and this goes to Professor Schrager's work in, in many ways, but the, the, the idea here that um, we confronted in Richmond, that you could not necessarily have as a person of color, great voting strength and expect to receive high social services. That part of the unfinished business that we have to confront as a state is Dylan's rule. Right? And this idea, right, that home rule, right, which offers a lot more, uh, many more progressive opportunities for change, right, that Virginia might become more progressive here on home rule and not be so wedded. Right, to an older system of Dylan's rule. Right? And so in this way, we might be behind. I think we should probably wrap up there then and really want to thank you both for the work you um, put into studying uh, this 50-year um, you know, anniversary. And I certainly learned a lot, and I hope that you all have as well. And thank you all for the opportunity to be here. Thank you. <laughs>